We are still in uh, eyewitness news, Gospel of Mark. And by the way, a friend came up and said, we need to remember to pray for the farmers. The weather's beautiful. We need to pray for the crops will be good. So I'm just throwing that in here just so you know. Mark, the second chapter, is part of this ongoing story of Jesus. There are four writers in the New Testament. For those of you who don't have much Bible background, you haven't read much of it, in the New Testament there are four writers that tell the story of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark is the shortest. It's the second one, and it's sort of a paperback edition for Roman soldiers. And in this, in this particular passage we're looking at today, Mark 2, 13 through 17, we'll see the text in just a few minutes, it records an encounter that cuts to the heart of the culture in Jesus' day. It cuts to the heart of Jesus' mission in the world. And it illustrates an interesting subject, foolishness, two kinds of foolishness. Now, nobody, nobody here wakes up the, in the morning and says, I just like to be foolish today. I just like to go out and be a fool, play the dummy or whatever it is. But all of us on occasion do things that are sort of foolish and well, our friend Dustin went out on Old Town in Old Town this week and just asked a couple of folks whether they'd done foolish stuff. Just, you can hear it. Hey, Timberline, we're in Old Town Square on a beautiful afternoon, about ready to ask some folks some questions. One of them being, what's the most foolish thing you've ever done? Oh, my goodness. Oh, there's a lot. Foolish in the sense that I'm embarrassed by it? I don't know, I probably broke out my breakdancing skills in front of everybody, <laughs> yeah, which aren't very good. Social situation, I would have to probably say, uh, just acting a fool to try to make people laugh. Probably said some things when some people were in the room that without knowing it, it affected them or hurt them, and just you kind of sound ignorant and silly. Even if it was a joke, it sometimes doesn't hit the people in the right places. Um, probably just get really drunk and act kind of stupid, you know? Um, just. Uh, and kind of just miss out on uh, a lot of beautiful things because of that. So we're calling today's thoughts, what kind of fool am I? What kind of fool am I? Now, some of you are old enough to remember a guy named Anthony Newley, British writer, composer, actor, who in 1963 wrote a song by this title, What Kind of Fool Am I? It goes, What Kind of Fool Am I? Da, 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 da. I won't sing it for you. <laughs> what Kind of Fool Am I? The lyrics read, Who Never Fell in Love. It seems that I'm the only one that I've been thinking of. What kind of man is this? An empty shell, a lonely cell in which an empty heart must dwell. What kind of clown am I? What do I know of life? Why can't I cast away the mask of play and live my life? Why can't I fall in love like any other man? And maybe then I'll know what kind of fool I am. What I know, what I know is that I don't want to go there. I don't want to be a fool. It's not, it, it's not my intuitive place. That's not where I want to default to, to do something dumb or, you know, just that sort of thing. But this story that we're about to read, this incident, shows us something about being a fool that I think we need to grapple with. Two kinds of foolishness. Listen to how the story reads. It's Mark, the second chapter, 13 through 17 verses. 
Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus. Now, Levi is also called Matthew, sitting at the tax collector's booth. They had tax collectors in the day that sat out on the roads, and if you use that road, you get taxed. It's like toll roads back east or whatever, but it's that sort of thing. Jesus, he saw him sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus said. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why? Why does he eat? Emphasis on big word here is eat. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, Jesus and Levi had something in common. Point one in your bulletin. Jesus and Levi had something in common. They were both collectors. Both collectors. Some of you here are collectors. I'm, I'm sort of a book collector, like not old books. I just like books. I just like reading books. And so Ruth now has instituted sort of a rule at our house, which is if you get a new one, you have to get rid of one. And I'm saying, no, 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 Ruth. You, what you need to understand is these are my friends, these books. You, you understand what I'm Some of you understand what I'm These are my friends. It's like taking one of your friends to Goodwill Industries. That's, that's not good. But so all of us, all of us collect some kind of stuff. But Levi collects taxes and Jesus collects people. He's a people collector. That's why we're here. But what was it about him that was so, so, so attractive? I mean, he healed people. That's big. That, that almost created a circus atmosphere in his day. People would just come out and say, here's the, here's the healer from Nazareth. Some people were released from bondages and phobias and all kinds of stuff. Some people were actually raised from the dead, according to the text. I've never seen that, but I'd show up to see something like that. That's big. But I think it's his attitude. I think it's his uh, vibe. There's something about him that attracts people. He's like a Pied Piper, where people are just drawn to him. I think he creates a space like young people would say, he creates a space or a landscape where all types, all kinds, all levels of people feel welcome. Now, there's a place like that here in Fort Collins that's pretty obvious, and it's called Timberline Old Town Everyday Joes, and a friend of mine and yours, Darren Fred, is part of that mix. He helps lead the charge. Would you welcome Darren Fred with me? Darren... Darren brought his own stool. Slide right, right over here, Darren. Come I always bring come, my own stool. Yeah, come a little closer. There you look we go. nice. There we go. You really do look nice. You're supposed Believe to say it. thank you very much. You Harry, do. yes. I'm serious. Yeah. I know some of the guys, they say that, and they don't mean it, but I do. You look nice, too. Thank you so much. Thank you for having yeah, me. Yeah, I'm old. Yeah. <clears throat> what did Tell you want? Me, what did I, you want? I, I want to I know, because I, I like this story. You know I like mm -hmm. stories. Talk to me about... 
how this thing started over on Mason Street. What's the snapshot of its history? Well, I feel like, no, I really believe that the history of this church, as long as I've been connected with it and before that, has, I think, been grace, and that is to respect where people are in, in their journey, you know, of faith, and to be people and, and an organization that provides time and space for people to, to find their way <clears throat> in faith. And so they, in doing that, have loved this town a lot. And 12 years ago, some of you were here, 12 years ago, they, they said, let's create a space in Old Town Fort Collins in the marketplace where hopefully if, if, if we do something well enough, the people will show up and then God would show up too and they would find each other. So like, what do you do well? So, right, so it, what has become now, it's on Mason Street <clears throat> in an old building that used to be a Firestone tire shop. I wonder who, who remembers when there was a Firestone tire shop downtown and that building still has the Fs on the facade. And we're in there at 144 South Mason. We're a fully functioning, volunteer-powered coffee house uh, Monday through Friday from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. and Saturday 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Uh, concerts and art and, and good, good, responsibly brewed coffee. And I, I had French press or whatever you, <clears throat> when I went there the last time. They said yeah. good stuff. Oh, I'm glad you like it. No, I do like we, it. We, we do our best. Yes, you do. I don't do it, but we, and volunteers make that. And then on, on Sunday we have church at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. right now. So if, if you were to just think of a snap, a picture in your head about what is Everyday Joe's Timberline Old Town, what is it? What picture comes to mind? It's a picture like this story, honestly. In this story, two people want to be with Jesus, two different, and, and they show up there, and one's really religious and one of them's not, and they show up to see Jesus, and then they say, what are you doing here to each other? And for me, <clears throat> all right, here's a scene. Uh, it's, it's just any day over at Everyday Joe's. And over here, there are some developmentally disabled adults. And over here is a teacher. And over there, a hippie couple with a kid. I can't tell if he's a boy or a girl. And over here, <laughs> that was bad. And then right at this table, right at this table here, uh, are these two guys, and one of them is the former district attorney of Larimer County, and one of them is the current district attorney, and they're there just chatting it up, catching up with each other. But here's the thing, like seven feet away from them at the very next table is a guy named Tracy who's homeless, and he's sitting there eating a bowl of cereal. He came in to have his breakfast. Now, what are you doing here, and you, in the same space? They both wanted to be in that space, and then they found each other. And these guys wear suits and work in, in nice buildings and do what we would all agree is important work. Yeah. This guy pulls everything he owns in a wagon and sleeps at night. I'm not kidding you, in a double wide portageon. What are you doing here? And it makes me think of this story, but it really makes me think, Dick, of this ancient poem from Isaiah chapter 11. And I know you've heard it. And the poet imagines a scene, you know, he writes a poem and says, imagine this. Imagine that something will happen or there will be a person. And when that something happens or that person comes, 
Wolves will live with lambs, and they won't devour each other. You heard it? The wolf will dwell with the lamb. And I always thought, well, when we get to heaven, wolves and lambs will both be there. And now after being at Joe's for a while, I'm thinking, maybe, maybe we're not supposed to wait for that. Maybe that's God's dream through the poet, that when we do things beautifully enough, uh, truly enough, that people will want to be there. And they will run into each other and will say, what are you doing here with each other that we get to help? Whatever you do, not the, the words you speak, the cakes you bake, the coffee you brew, the work you do, whatever you do, that it would be so compelling that the kingdom of heaven would break in and, you know, we get to help. And, and what country. do you, like, do you walk around or what do you I, do? If there are cupcakes, I do. Cupcakes? <laughs> when, are, when are there cupcakes? Thursday. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, the cu there's a cupcakery in Old Town. Yes. And I'm, I'm going to leave here. I'm going to take my stool, but I did want to tell you something. That yeah. They give us their cupcakes the day old from Wednesday on yeah. Thursdays. And, and I'm Dick. Dale, cupcakes are fine. Oh, I believe And then it. I just take, oh, them, I I take them around to tables, and I just say, hey, you want a cupcake? And most of them say yes, but if they say no, then I'm suspicious of them, because why would somebody turn down a cupcake? You can't trust a person that turns oh, down a cupcake. Oh, that's exactly. Let's thank Darren and his gang. So Matthew and Mark and Luke all record this story that looks like everyday Joe's. It's got this conglomerate of people, and it's, it's around food. Food is huge in our culture. I mean, we've got food channels. You know the food channels? Some of you are nodding. You know, you, you can't stay away from Chopped or the Worst Baker or whatever they do. And my favorite guy is this guy. Drive-ins and dives, we know no boundaries of region, size, or cuisine. Matter of fact, we've done Italian, Mexican, American, barbecue, heck, you name it, we've done it all. We've even done Chinese-Jamaican fusion. But one we haven't done is German. And that brings us here to Glendale, Arizona, to House Murphy. Chicken schnitzel up. It's comfort food. <laughs> but no matter how big food is with us, it's nothing. The table or mealtime is nothing compared to the Middle East. The Middle East centers whole cultures around sitting at table. Last weekend, I spoke in Washington, D.C. at National Community Church, and, and the day before, I was in an, a house and three Palestinian women came in, and we were talking about things, and I said, talk to me about food or the meal time in your culture. And they say, they said, hospitality is at the heart of the culture. It's just right there. Everything centers around that. I mean, so much so that if you're my enemy and you come to my house, I have to entertain you. I have to take care of you and feed you for three days at my house if you're my enemy. And I said, well, like, what happens after that? <coughs> or what? <laughs> they laughed and said, no. But the idea is that... In Jesus' day, sitting at table was huge. If you wanted to send a message, if you wanted to change a culture, if you wanted to confront injustice, if you wanted to free a people, how would you do that? Well, apparently you'd go to Levi's house. Second point is this. The message of Jesus was found in the meal. The message of Jesus 
is found in the meal. That is, how you do what you do is the message. You can tell me any words you want, but how you do what you do is your message. And for Jesus, the message is found in the meal. He goes to the heart of the culture. Table fellowship was at the core of his culture. It's at the core of his culture. So by eating with outcasts, Jesus was doing two things. He was speaking to hearts on the one hand and confronting culture on the other hand. You see, in Jesus' day, it, it isn't what you ate that made you who you are. It's with whom you ate that defined you. The people you ate with were the people you were like, and therein lies the problem. You got the religious types who are trying to be specific and totally clean. They got laws coming out of their ears to define who you eat with, how you eat, what you do on the Sabbath, how, hundreds of laws. And Jesus, by sitting at table with Levi, shatters in that one moment, in that one meal time, it's in your face to the culture, to the religious culture of the day. Companionship, camaraderie, fellowship, intimacy, an intimacy that was just unexplainable. It was profoundly unacceptable. It was by the rules of the day. Well, it just isn't done. You don't take dirty and put it at the heart of the culture. You don't sully that place of intimacy that defines who you are by eating with the wrong people. See, it isn't just that this was dinner. It was symbolic. And symbols are powerful. The American flag, the pink ribbon that we wear to fight breast cancer, the Livestrong bracelets. The, I mean, these are symbols of things. Had the privilege of taking four of our pastoral team with me to D.C. this past week. And on Monday afternoon... We drove from Washington, D.C., two and a half hours south to the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. Fantastic drive down the Shenandoah Valley. The Forsythia and the Redbuds and the dogwoods were in bloom and farms over here. It's the kind of country that my wife says restores her soul. We got to the University of Virginia. They gave us a little tour. We had some friends there. We were standing on the lawn like standing on the oval over at CSU. And they were saying, this building is such and this is that. And when you get to be a fourth-year person, you get to live on the lawn in these rooms that are adjacent. Thomas Jefferson designed the University of Virginia. It's one of the top two public universities in the United States, advised for number one with Berkeley in terms of quality education. And he said, you see that building up there at the head of the, of the lawn? That's the library. In Jefferson's day, all universities had chapels at the center, and he took the chapel and put it outside the quad, outside the center part, and put the library there as a symbol for enlightenment. That night, we went, I went to speak at the University of Virginia to a group called Chi Alpha. They work on campuses. We have one here at CSU. And when we walk into the room, there are 420 University of Virginia students, the best and the brightest, sitting in the room, praising Jesus, saying, in essence, you know that symbol of the chapel being outside the lawn? I think we'll bring the chapel back. Symbols are powerful. And Jesus, in doing that, puts two strong symbols together. He takes the meal, the table fellowship that represents the culture, and he takes a tax collector 
who is the symbol of everything these people despise. And he puts them in the same space like everyday Joseph. He puts them in that space. The tax collector in Jesus' day was a foreign power through a foreign process of foreign people. He was just foreign. The problem is this guy Levi isn't just a collector of taxes. Now you have chief tax collectors like Zacchaeus. You know the story of the little guy up a tree out on a limb that Jesus, he goes to his house too. He was a chief tax collector. But, but he had guys who worked under him like Levi who were called publicans. He contracted out the tax collecting business. And so here's Levi, a publican, and, and it isn't just that he takes your money. He represents everything that oppresses you, everything that's unclean, and it, it's just the worst. You can't imagine anybody worse than that. He collected taxes on the road at his little booth. He collected taxes from fishermen who brought in their load. And his deal was, whatever the Romans said charged that much, he'd add a percentage. A forced gratuity, if you will. Could be 5%, could be 12%. And for that reason, they hated him. When a guy paid tolls, if he needed change, he wouldn't, he wouldn't take it from the tax collector. He'd go to a friend and said, the price here is a five and all I have is a 10. Do you have two fives? Because I'm not going to touch this guy's money. Tax collectors were not allowed to tithe at the temple. They were not allowed to be witnesses in court in the Jewish system. They were the lowest dregs of society because they spoke to everything that these people hated. The problem is, Jesus comes in Mark 1 and it says, he comes preaching, turn around, here's the kingdom of God. And they turn around and here's a carpenter type guy. It's not anything that they expected, but he's introducing a whole new culture. It's not a culture that has rules and laws in the same way that this culture had. This was a culture that said, come one, come all, anybody gets in. There is not a pecking order. We're all equal here in the kingdom of God. This is just how it is. So to change the, the rules or to change the rules of the core seems foolish. Point three, to change the rules of the core seems foolish. We've all done foolish things. But how often do we do foolish things for a right reason? Jesus walks right into the mouth of the beast, if you will. He goes to the thing that symbolizes what the culture is about, and he, then he brings with him, in essence, these terrible people. Why would you do that? Why would you take the chance? Apparently, Levi was throwing a party. Luke says it's a great banquet, throwing a party to say, I'm leaving my old life and doing this new thing. And the new thing is I'm going to follow this Jesus person to his father's house. Jesus said, follow me. In essence, I'm going to my father's house. And Levi says, could we swing by my place first? I, I just like to throw a party for you. So he throws a party to which he invites Jesus. And he's got all of his friends. The problem is he didn't have any good friends. They're all scumbags by the culture of the day. They're just you know, they're terrible people. And Jesus graces that place with his presence. It's hard to imagine how powerful that is for Jesus to do this foolish thing. Because when rabbis or prophets sat at table with people, it suggested God's presence. Jesus offers them brotherhood, trust, acceptance to the dregs of society. They don't fit any of the parameters. They don't meet any of the standards that polite company would keep. And Jesus, in essence, says, these are my people. 
Point four, what seemed to be foolish was life-giving. What seemed to be foolish was life-giving. Foolishness in the early church was the word that was used for people who confronted the injustices of the day. Hypocrisy, brutality, thirst for power and gains. They confronted that. It's interesting the language that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 10, 4.10. says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but we are wise, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honorable, but we are despised. St. Francis of Assisi modeled this when people who joined his order gave away everything that they had, sold all their possessions, did whatever, and just walked the streets and preached the news about Jesus. It seemed like a dumb thing. That's a foolish thing to do that. But they wanted to focus the attention on Jesus. Now, uniquely, Matthew, when he recounts this in Matthew 9, 9 through 13, he adds a phrase. He puts a phrase in there that he clearly heard. It's not recorded in the other two Gospels. And the phrase is this. Jesus, in the course of saying, I didn't come for healthy people, righteous people. I came for sick people. But then he says this, I do not desire sacrifice. All your sacrificial laws, all the keeping the check marks and counting, the, I didn't come. I don't desire sacrifice. What I desire is mercy. Go and find out what mercy is about. I have a friend who taught law at Georgetown for some years. He's a Spanish guy from a Latin American country. Elegant man, stands tall, has a deep Spanish accented voice, speaks like this. <laughs> and we were at breakfast one day with some guys, and he said, you know, I go all over the world, and I help developing nations put their infrastructure together. And they keep saying to me, what we need is more laws. And I say, no, 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 no. What you need is to learn to love each other because where love stops, law starts. These are people of laws. These are people who tell you how good you are by whether you keep, got all the points going. And Jesus comes along in essence and says, you don't have enough points to be in my culture. You'll never have enough points to be in my kingdom. I bring all the points. That's how this works. And so just by the physical contact he might have had with them, I just freaked out these people with the laws. These just freaked him out because you don't touch leprous type. You don't touch the unclean guy. These, these are categorically, un, they had categories. Their foolishness was they had hardening of the categories. They saw people by groups, by ethnicities, by whether they did this or that. And Jesus comes along and says, my father has a deeper vision than you do, and he sees these people in different ways. You see, these guys didn't get it. They thought that if Jesus touched these guys, he'd be made dirty. They didn't get it that when Jesus touched these guys, they would be made clean. And so here you have 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 through 31. Paul just kind of goes off, if you will, on this thing about it just has to do with foolishness for the message of the cross is foolishness you know i mean you look at it and say here's somebody impaled upon a roman gibbet well that'll bring you life well that doesn't make any sense at all that's crazy that's foolishness but to those of us who are being saved it's the power of god 
Verse 20, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Listen to this last verse, verse 25. For the foolishness of God, that's, it's hard for you to even put those two words in the same sentence. The foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. Last week, I, I loved driving through D.C. and taking friends who were driving down Constitution Avenue. We're going up toward the Capitol, and over here is the Lincoln Memorial, and right there is the Vietnam Wall, and up 22nd Street is the State Department. And on this corner is the National Academy of Sciences. And in front of the National Academy of Sciences is a statue of Albert Einstein. It's a big, oversized, bronze statue of him sitting there in, like, Birkenstocks and a rumpled sweater. And you always go and take friends, and you climb up on his lap and take pictures with the brain and, you know, all that. It's really tremendous. He had some unbelievably profound thoughts. Every time I drive by that statue, I think of this verse. And I think Einstein's best thought, his very best thought, is less than God's joke. The foolishness of God is higher than man's wisdom. Now, he made Einstein. He let him think the deep thoughts, but his thoughts, they're only discoveries of who this God is. So, next weekend is Easter, Resurrection Day, Jesus crucified, and, and I'm saying, why did it happen? Why did they kill him? Well, apparently because he ate with the wrong people. He identified, he brought his identity to the wrong people. And the people who were judging him thought that he was getting their identity. And the political types, because he confronted their power base, everybody liked him, said great crowds were following him. They said, if we don't stop this guy, all of the country will follow him. You can read it in the Gospels. There are two kinds of foolish. Jesus had a calculated foolishness. There are two kinds. And I close with this. The one that comes from arrogance and self-deception, thinking, I am righteous and that I am hot stuff. It's foolish. Don't be that kind of fool. You know, don't, don't be that kind of fool. What kind of fool am I? Don't be that one. But there's this other kind of foolishness. That one was characterized by the guys with hardening of the categories. The other kind of foolishness comes from love and mercy. Love makes you do crazy stuff. I mean, it's just, you've seen young lovers on a bench over there, and they're nuzzling and holding hands and just lost in each other, and, they're, and you're trying not to look. You don't want to, but they're doing, they're just loving you, and you're just, so you're just looking, and you don't want to, but there's something so attractive. They're just crazy people over there, just crazy. Or the guy in Old Town that gets down on one knee, you know, he just gets down like this, and he, he takes the girl's hand, and he says, will you marry me? Right in front of God and everybody out there. Why would he do that? Well, you don't think straight when you're in love. You, you just, you know, you just do crazy stuff. Love makes you do foolish things. Mercy is foolish. A mother seeing a burning building and her child is in the second story. And she breaks through the fire cordons and she breaks through the police lines and she rushes into a burning building and people are trying to stop her. But she's superhuman and she races into the, and they're saying you could die in there. Both of you could die. And she doesn't hear it because mercy doesn't have good ears when it comes to that kind of stuff. Mercy and love goes beyond logic 
Mercy and love is foolish. Eats with the wrong people. Hangs out in places where people are so lost they can't find their way out. Mercy and love looks like Jesus and Jesus' style is confronting us with his mercy, identifying with us at the table, finding us hiding behind our guilts and our successes and our skepticism and our doubt and tagging us and saying, you're it. And I believe he means it. No wonder they were waving palms on Palm Sunday and throwing their coats down in the road. No wonder they were doing that. And when I see that and when I read this, what it makes me, what it makes me do, it makes me say, well, I want to do that. I want to unlock people's doors and let them out. Could I be a part of that? Well, nothing has changed. Jesus still does that today. I love that verse in Revelation 3. It's the last thing in the Bible where it says, look, here I am. I stand, I'm standing at the door and knocking. I'm also calling, apparently, if anyone hears my voice and comes and opens the door, I'll come in and I'll eat with you. Literally, it means I'll come and have an evening meal. There may be some of us today who say, you know, I'm, I got to tell you, I'm that first kind of foolish. I'm sort of a categorical people I, a person. I see groups and I, you know. I'd really like to stop that. And there may be some of us here today who say, I sort of, I think I might feel him knocking. I've never opened my door. I never really thought about that. I guess my question would be to the knocking and the calling. Any takers? Would you bow your heads and your hearts with me today? Just in this quiet moment, with no one looking except the Lord, I guess, and, and Foth. I'd just like to ask this question. Perhaps you're in that place where you say, Dick, I am way too categorical. See, I get the categorical part. I'm a specialist in categorical. Lord's, have to work, Lord's had to work on me like for 70 years and still working on me. And you say, I just like to, I'd like to think beyond my categories. I want to say, God, don't let me have hardening of the categories. Let me see people individually, not as groups. And you'd say, I'd like you to include me in your prayer when you close this time. And you just slip up your hand and say, I just need, I just need help there. And you slip up. Uh, that's right. Just put your hands up and say, I'm, I'm that way too much. I see you. Yep. 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 Yes, I see you. Yeah. You can put your hands down. It, it, it isn't, you have to be ashamed of that. It's just when it comes to our attention, we get to respond to it. There may be some here this morning. There have been some in all of our times today and last night who say, you know, I, I think I'm one of those persons. I think Jesus is knocking on my door. I've never, I've never said I'd like to follow him like Levi. But I think I would. I'd like to be set free like that. I'd like to have purpose like that. And you just say, I, I'd like to be included in your prayer too. And you just slip your hand up and say, just include me in that prayer. Just lift your hand up wherever you are. Yes, I see you. Yes. Yes, I see you. Yes, I see you. You can put your hand down. Thanks. Thanks. Looking across the sanctuary. Great. Thanks, I see you. You can put your hand down, young lady. Thanks. 
Lord, here we are. We're your people. Sometimes we don't know where to turn, hardly, because of our stuff. But I thank you for these truth tellers who have said, I think maybe I'm a categorical person in some ways and I'd like to be free. In this moment, by your spirit, I pray that you would unlock our doors, let us out. And for the others who raised hands to say, I'd like to answer the door. I'd like to invite Jesus to touch my life. And you, you see them, you know their hearts, even as they say, Lord, take my stuff, take my sin, take my history and give me a future. We believe you that you're doing that even as we pray. Thank you, Lord, for this day, for this Palm Sunday, when we can respond to you in praise. We thank you for what you've done in this room, even in the last minute. You can do more in a minute than both can do in 300 years. So thank you for doing that. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, It's Palm Sunday. We can clam and shout. We can clap and shout any Sunday. Now it's time for the benediction. That means good word in Latin. I don't know Latin, but I know that's Latin. Okay? I always like the benediction, because I don't know, do we do scripture, do we just pray a blessing? But I was thinking, why don't we sing a song? Back in the day when I was at the University of Illinois as a young pastor, it was back in the hippie days. Some of you remember that. Some of you don't remember that. But, uh, you know, young people would come to Jesus, and they had hair down wherever they had, you know, they, they came barefoot and sat in the aisles, and some of them were high on who knows what, and, and Jesus cut through all of that and sat at table with them. And it could be a farm kid from Illinois or a kid from the north side of Chicago in a sophisticated home, but when you ask them what song they wanted to sing, this is the song that they had learned that they'd want to sing, and it has to do with mercy. And it goes like this. We're just going to sing it a cappella. And these are the words. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. We're going to sing it one more time. The prayer team is going to come and be here. Some of you have needs and you just want somebody to just take a hand and pray with me. And these folks like doing this and they, and they do it well and it's a wonderful moment. So feel free to come and be with the prayer team. I'll be down here too. And um, as you go from this place, go with this thought in your heart that there's a foolishness born of I can get this done myself and there's a foolishness born of thanks for loving me and showing your mercy one more time mercy there was great and grace was free pardon there was multiplied to me there my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary go in his mercy see you Easter Sunday God bless you <laughs>